everybody we have ourselves a very fascinating topic today a great show um i love documentaries what can i say when i watch them i watch them once as a normal viewer and i take it at face value then i'll digest that and i'll write some stuff down then i'll watch it again but this time i'll do it objectively you know and i'll do that a few days later so after watching the documentary twice, I had to reach out to Nicole, who is the owner and founder of One Taste, because there is clearly just one side to the story being shown. And out of the numerous hours of footage, I'm sure that's available, it, it seemed to have been cherry-picked, you know, to show the footage and interviews that basically put a cataclysmic filter on how we see one taste. The perception is that Nicole abused her power and basically had her employees under mind control and essentially one taste became a sex cult, which was depicted in the film. Ultimately, that led to the destruction you know, of some people's lives under the organization, allegedly. And that message broadcasted in this documentary just seemed to be seemed to have been fabricated in a sense to me after the second time that I watched it. So Netflix has the film. It's called orgasm Inc. If you'd like to go check it out, you can watch that, um, see it at face value. And then like myself, you can go ahead and watch it a second time objectively and then listen to this podcast or you can watch it one time, listen to this podcast, and then go back and watch the Netflix film Orgasm Inc. But with me today is Eli Block, and he is close friends of the owner of One Taste, the, the Netflix documentary Orgasm Inc. So I'm thankful that he's here. Um, I'm super excited to get this underway and get their truth and some facts, and hopefully we could make a conclusion after this, after seeing the the Orgasm Inc. Netflix documentary and after talking to Eli Block. So, hope you all enjoy. Eli Block, welcome to the podcast. I appreciate you being here, man. And for those living under a rock... There was a Netflix documentary called <laughs> Orgasm Inc. that kind of defaced the organization. So we will tie loose wow, ends together. Word. Hey, I've never heard that word before. Defaced? Wow. You haven't good. heard <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I was doing my homework. Defaced. And you know what? The, the point of this podcast is we're going to tie loose ends together. We're going to speak your facts. And ultimately, we'll let the viewer determine their point of view. I mean, that's something that the Netflix film did not do, I felt. They provided a clear bias view and then kind of just ended it. And that was final. They're basically like, all right, you have the story. There's no further questions. 
and film. So yeah. Yeah. Now that the stage is set, let's go ahead and get on how to, how come you came across one taste? Okay. Well, I guess first I just want to say, Jay, thanks for the opportunity to be here. Um, it's been uh, deeply disillusioning uh, the past few years to have been interacting with the media so much. You know, I, I, I'd never done anything like this before. You know, I've, I've been a part of the organization uh, in one way or another for about 14 years. And I'll tell you in a minute uh, how I got involved initially. But, yeah, um, you know, I... Um, I always kind of knew. I always kind of knew that you know the news could be tricky and that people could cut things and edit things to make it look like stuff happened that didn't really. And I, you know, especially in the last few years with the increased uh, political uh, climate, um, the volatility and the sort of hyper partisanship that we've been in more and more recently, I've seen so many examples of having my knee jerked in the news and in the media and sort of walking away from a piece of news thinking, well, now I really dislike that person that it was about, you know, and then if I do just a little research and scratch the surface just to find out that, hey, that video was shown, you know, 30 seconds in that guy was, you know, that guy punched that guy because the first guy lit his house on fire and was, you know, <laughs> was dragging exactly, his children yeah. around by their hair, you know, and it's like, yeah. there's just been so many cases of, of like gotcha journalism and, and sort of um, I think what's being called new journalism on the sly, which is stories being constructed from narratives that are created for the purpose of selling, you know, selling clicks and, um, yes. you know, rousing people's sense of, of um, you know, uh, there, there's a victim and a perpetrator. And these are the stories that, that, you know, tap into something, I think, very deep inside the human psyche. And, You're right. Um, it's a real problem when, when like everyone's getting their news from just a headline and they won't even click into it. Like they'll just read the service and be like, all right, that's the news. So that defines this person that defines this company just by the headline. Yeah. And I want to be, I, I agree. And I, and I want to be really clear that, you know, I'm, I'm probably going to say some things about, um, you know, this Netflix documentary, if you want to call it that um, I, I tend to call it a production or film. Um, but you know, I think, I think just to be really clear, uh, you know, I feel like reporters are, are by and large, by and large, there are some notable exceptions doing their best to um, keep up with the demands of the newsroom these days, which with the 24 hour news cycle and the kind of demand for hard hitting, uh, true crime, bust them up, um, whistle blowing, you know, kind of. Uh, uh, everyone wants to break a big story about someone kind of journalism. It puts a lot of pressure on people to create narratives and to uh, adjust stories in a way that um, isn't necessarily congruent with reality. And, and right. so um, I want to say that again, because I believe in the first amendment. I believe in, you know, the principles of this country, this country is founded for, I believe in free speech. And um, at the same time, I feel like, you know, the pendulum has swung pretty far in the direction of um, uh, creating these narratives in order to, um, frankly, make money at the expense of people's personal lives and people's lives yeah. work. And we're in a climate now where you can get famous and you can gain notoriety for doing nothing other than taking down someone who has been famous and who has notoriety. And, um, you know, there's like in Highlander, there's like a quickening. You know, like you take someone's head and you get all their power. And it's like, I, I look out at our culture and I see a culture that's becoming more and more concerned with 
the kind of significance you get from um, simply pointing a finger at someone, not at building something great. And I think significance, um, you know, in a, in a quote unquote perfect world, uh, in, a, in a just world, in, a, in an, a world that's aligned with nature, let's put it that way, um, significance would be something that you would get from putting your creation, putting your creative energies to work and making something great for people um, that people benefit from, not from finding one thing in it that, you know, you can exploit to tell a story or finding somebody with, you know, hurt feelings or, um, you know, taking someone's story that uh, doesn't necessarily even um, agree with your narrative and twisting it into the narrative in order to tell a larger story. And I think if you look at the media, if, if your listeners, um, who I'm sure are, are smart, reasonable, logical, you know, thinking people really want to look deeply into this story, um, the, you know, One Taste has published a Medium site, which is uh, medium.com slash at One Taste. And you can see, you know, sort of how this narrative has evolved. So, okay, so that's my, that's my pre-frame for, for, for where we're going. How's that? Pretty damn good. Okay. <laughs> I think we Pretty have the table set and there's, there's a clear picture now. So let's, let's get let's into it, it, right? Let's, let's jump in. Okay. So you asked me, how, how did I get involved, right? That's the question on the how table. How did you come across One Taste? Yeah. How did you get involved? Okay. Okay, so a little little about me. So I um, I am from uh, uh, the San Francisco Bay Area. I am from Berkeley. Uh, don't judge me too harshly. Too uh, late. <laughs> but you know, I, I I wrote a bio a while ago, um, which I think kind of sums it up. Which is you know my my parents met a long time ago and a long time ago in the seventies at uh, a Zen Buddhist monastery in California. And I grew up around Zen Buddhism. And so I always had consciousness and community woven together. And I always had, <clears throat> you know, role models and people who I was looking up to who were um, serious practitioners uh, of, of something which they really were putting themselves into. And so I was, I was meditating from a very young age. <clears throat> and generally, excuse me, generally my time... Um, you know, uh, in and around Zen Center was great. And it, I think it greatly informed the practitioner that I am today. Um, I also would say that um, as much as I love, I mean, not as much as I love, I love Zen Center. I love the people who who helped give me that, that transmission, powerful transmission of practice and um, Buddhism. Uh, and I think that you know, and this might not just be Zen Center, but I think this is just sort of American culture, we tend to be a, a bit puritanical. And I absorbed somehow uh, a sort of stoic masculine um, archetype that had me a bit far from my feelings and kind of afraid, you know, of intimacy from a young age. And I was always, it was easy for me to make friends. It was easy for me to, 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 I always had, you know, a lot of people who I, who I, you know, could call up and, and hang out with and stuff. But, um, I started to have this experience when I was, um, I guess around 16 where, um, I would go on dates with women and, um, it wouldn't happen every time, but sometimes, um, have you ever seen South Park, you know, South oh, yeah. Park? Brilliant. Okay, so you know who Stan is on South Park? Yeah. Okay, so if, for your listeners who don't know who Stan is, a character on South Park whose girlfriend, Wendy, whenever she says, hi, Stan, he, he <laughs> throws up. 
and <laughs> that's, his, that's his character. And and so she goes, "Hi, Stan," and he goes, "Blah." And I and I had just crazy nerves on dates, which I think is really common for men, especially as we're kind of getting our our, our feet under us and sort of learning about women and interacting. And you know, you sit across from a woman and you're like, "My God, like." you know, something about her beauty or her emanation or, you know, something she's emanating something and it is having an effect on me. And I don't know, can you relate to that at all? Well, at the beginning of my life, I did. But then, you know, as I like progressed through life, it was like, well, this is just another human being. She's probably more nervous, if not just as nervous to talk to me as I am to her. So it's probably like an equal playing field is how I saw it. I felt like I was yeah, putting and I think it that's on actually a cool. too much. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it's what I'm saying is maybe a little different, which is that actually learning to be intimate is, um, you know, pretty, it's a pretty intense experience. And I don't, you know, when it comes to relationships, you know, I have sort of a visceral reaction to faking it. And I think when I was, you know, younger, again, like, you know, 16, late teens, early twenties, I didn't really have a good sense of, um, I mean, it's sort of funny. It's like, how do you say it? It's like, I think I had a lot of desire. I think I had a lot of kind of raw feeling inside of me. And I think I had a deep desire to be intimate and absolutely no idea how to do that. <laughs> how about that? <laughs> what, what's, in, what's, what's insane is that in high school, the, the people that tended to get girls were the ones that were treating them like complete shit. It was almost amazing to see. And it, it happened so frequently. Like the, this dude was just treating this girl like complete crap. And like, she was obsessed with them. And I saw it so often. Yeah. There's many schools of thought that explain that, um, in various ways, I guess Maybe um, another, another podcast for that. Maybe another podcast. We're there, we're gonna have a lot of moments like that, Jay. Maybe next episode. But so so there I was, and I get you know I got to a point where actually I was pretty functional, and um, I had a I had a pretty good experience with with women, and, and life was going great. I was working at Apple. Um, I was um, a, like a lead genius person at a genius bar at a retail store. Um, I was, uh, you know, considering a jump to corporate at Apple. A bunch of my friends who had been working with me for a long time had made the jump and they were all kind of on the other side, kind of beckoning me over. And, um, and I had, um, I had a guy, the guy actually who, uh, initially, uh, was my hiring manager at Apple. The guy who hired me for my first position, um, was a dude who I knew and, um, you know, uh, actually funny enough, he's the guy in the podcast, uh, who has, who's the bald guy in the podcast, Chris, Chris is his name. Yeah. And, Chris. um, I, I met Chris in 2005 or 2000. You're saying in the podcast, do you mean in the film? All right. In the film. Yeah. In the film. Yeah. The film. And, uh, he was, you know, and he's heard me tell the story a million times and he and I are despite, you know, despite the, uh, disaster of a film that the Correct. Netflix film was Correct. total and utter disaster. I don't even think it makes him look very good at all. Um, it makes nobody look good. And it makes nobody look good at all. It's a, the whole thing. Oh my God. Anyway. Um, but you know, at the time he was, he was this dude who was really struggling to, um, 
meet and connect with women also kind of in an intimate way. And he and I were really good buds and we would, we would joke, we had the same sort of dry sense of humor and we were friends. And I remember he tried everything to learn how to meet women. And I, he tried, um, you know, some guys try and do like the pickup thing. And so he got a bunch of piercings and some jewelry and he was kind of like, <clears throat> you know, learned some lines and, you know, became sort of that guy. And, and then, you know, for a while he was like, you know, trying to become, uh, you know, uh, a guy who is, and this isn't like necessarily literal to him, but like men, men try all kinds of different things in order to meet women. And a lot of the, there, a lot of, there was a, a lot show of, called the pickup artist. Have yeah. you ever seen it? You have, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's I called, so. it's called peacocking. When you put like ridiculously, yeah, you wear ridiculous right. stuff, you do piercings just to get a conversation going. <laughs> right. Exactly. And, yes. and men, men we're, we're Men are given all these prescriptions about what to do. Um, you yes. know, you can be the funny guy who makes everyone laugh. Ha ha ha. Like that can be your thing. Or you can be that. You can be the pickup guy or you can be like the the, the warrior primal guy who only eats, you know, the organs of live animals or, you know, and goes to drum circles. <laughs> right, right. And so there's, there's all these there's all these kind of male archetypes that were handed and we're set, you know, we're told like, you know, do this and you'll get the babes. And to a certain yeah. extent, it's true. But but one taste i think offered him uh the anti-prescription and because what i mm. observed was he tried all this stuff and none of it was really getting him the connection that he wanted he may have gotten some results but results and connection are not necessarily the same thing and he came to work one day i remember he was on vacation for a week or two he came back to work one day and there was just something different about him and I don't know if I can describe it exactly in words, but I just remember feeling it when he was around me. There was something that had happened that I, I couldn't, I couldn't put my finger on, so to speak. And, you know, eventually we went out to lunch together and I was like, okay, bro, like, what did, what did you do? You know, like, what, what have you been up to? Right. And, and he wouldn't tell me. And he was like, you know, he was being really evasive and, Eventually I just pressed him on it and he was like, okay, I'll tell you, but like, you know, you can't tell anybody at work. <laughs> and I was like, okay, you know, try me, you know, he's like, okay, I'm, well, I'm doing this meditation, you know? And in mm. my mind, I was like, oh, meditation. Like I know meditation. I grew up with meditation, no sweat meditation. Right. That's all you got, you know? And he's like, well, it's a meditation where I'm stroking a woman's clitoris, you know, for 15 minutes. And she's not like doing anything back to me in return, but it's actually changing my life and it's changing how I feel about myself. And in that moment, Jay, I was sitting there with a half eaten burger in front of me and my mouth was hanging open. And it was like that, that, that moment in the movie where like the sun comes up and the sun goes down and the moon goes up and the moon goes down and the sun goes up and the sun goes down. <laughs> And it was like, I was in my mind, like furiously trying to do the math on how this could possibly be the case because, yeah. you know, I've been trained for my whole life that, well, you know, things should be fair, darn it. And if it's not fair, then I'm not getting mine. And, you know, all of this sort of very dualistic thinking about, about how much I was entitled to and how things should go. And he broke all of that math in that moment saying that he was getting something really incredible out of this practice which to me sounded totally asymmetrical and it didn't make any sense, but it stuck out in my mind. 
And I had several other relationships with women that, you know, eventually crashed and burned. And I got a front row look at like, just, you know, relationships are, are kind of like cars that you're in, you know, like you can either get out at the same place and at a destination and feel really great about where you went, or they can drive off the road, burst into flames and you never see the person again, you know? <laughs> and, Been there, done that. <laughs> yeah, right? And, and I was just like, wow, you know, after the last one, I was just like, wow, okay, like that was fine. Like I, I loved that woman and everything, but like there's right. something more that's possible and I don't know how to access it. Like I've, I've hit the end of what I know how to do. And, and the intimacy that I know how to create and, and the connection that I know how to actually grow and foster. And so I, I remember being in my apartment, I'm lying on my back on my couch and I pull my phone out and I'm looking through my phone, you know, and I'm like, okay, let me call a friend and just hang out with someone, you know, this is post breakup. And all of a sudden his name scrolls by on the screen. And I was like, oh yeah, that thing I always wanted to try out. And I called him that day. And I was like, hey, man, he's still he's still doing that thing. And, and he's like, yeah, I am. This is like two years later. And and I was like, OK, I was like, OK, I, I got to check it out. And he invited me to an event. And, you know, Jay, I, I got to tell you, you know, I walked through the, the doors of this place initially and I was really you know, my, all of my defenses were up and I was, I was really, I was excited, but I was really skeptical. I was very ambivalent. You know, I was kind of like, yeah. And uh, like at the same yeah, time, how could you not be right? Yeah. Exactly. It's, it's so, it's so taboo. It was. And, and, and I think what was probably the, one of the most taboo things was, you know, I have my kind of cultural voice in my head. That's like, here's what, this is the mm. best approximation I have of what it said. It's some version of like, um, wisdom does not exist in this realm. Uh, no one who knows anything about sexuality, relationships, and desire is particularly wise. These people are probably animals, and <laughs> you know, and like they're, they're these people are simpletons, and they just don't understand how the world works. They don't understand how things work, and you know, um, you're going to come in here and sort of get what it is that you want, and then leave without really having you know, leave before anything gets too serious or before, you know, they want something or, or, you know, who knows what it is, but, but at a basic level, kind of like, I know, I know what's really up and these people are just kind of heathens, you know, Eli, you and, think too much. Yeah. Just, just jump in, man. You're right. You Jay, you, you and me would be a good, uh, would be a good, like a, a cop duo, you know, uh, <laughs> I'll, right, I'll be yeah. the, I'll be the Danny Clover and, and you'd be the Mel Gibson. <laughs> what a perfect match so anyway right. oh go, sorry go ahead no 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 you continue i was just saying you're right you're right so so i'm so i'm standing there outside this place and i'm like kind of working up my courage to go in and i'm like okay so and it's like and by the way this isn't like some weird off the path place this is on Folsom street in you know south of market district in san francisco uh to the left of us is a, a cafe uh, to the right is a is a is a extreme pizza parlor. I mean, this is like right in the middle of everything. We're not like at some okay. weird warehouse with like a secret knock on the door or something like that. This is like, this is like you know a big big glass windows. You can see everything which is going on the first floor. Like this place was yeah. you know it was on the corner. Nicole's vision from the very beginning was to create a you know a safe 
well-lit place for this conversation to occur. And so I was like, okay, I can do this. I can do this. So I walk in I start talking to people. And the first thing I notice is like, these women are not scared. Like, <laughs> like the first thing I notice is like a woman, a woman comes up to me and starts talking to me. And I'm just like, wow, like there is something like, usually I would be the one who would like have to seek out, you know, someone to talk to. And yeah. here it's sort of like people are generous with their attention and we're talking about, you know, well, what, what did you come here for? And, you know, what's, what's your interest in what we're doing? And, you know, clearly these people are, are, excuse me, representatives of the organization, but just the, and they're talking to me because I'm like a prospective customer and someone who's interested in what they're doing, but there was some other quality to them that was just more than what you would get at the sunglasses hut. It was a whole different kind of energetic experience. And what's the ratio when you walked in to men to women, would you think? Oh, it was like probably three to one women to men. Wow. That could be intimidating. Yeah. But it was also, it was also like, um, it was also great, <laughs> you know, but oh, it was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think it was, you know, I think as I, as I began to find out more and more about sort of what this was and what this place was about, I began to understand that these were women who were, who were working on cultivating a kind of power that most women I'd ever met in my life had never even thought of or wanted. And, you know, that there were, there was, um, this kind of woman, uh, did not play by the standard cultural rules of what women are supposed to play by, which is, you know, she's supposed to be kind of meek and let me chase her. And, you know, she's, um, you know, uh, uh, sort of, uh, pretends not to have the strong opinions as she does. Um, if she's smarter than me, she doesn't let me know right off the bat, you know, <laughs> like, there's all yeah. these things. And these women were like, no, no, I'm smarter than you. And I was like, oh yeah, you are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so society's so, a weird place. It is. And, 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 and so Jay, I mean, the thing that I can tell you is that, you know, I grew up in the Zen center. I grew up in a place where there was a strong ethos of practice where people were working on, you know, it's funny. It's such a misnomer to say working on themselves. They were sort of working on, yeah. you know, they were working on something much deeper than the self on, on, on sort of the more primal, more primordial energies that we all carry that I think actually, if we don't, if we don't make those things conscious, uh, if we mm. don't integrate those things, they get expressed in unconscious ways. And I think yes. that's sort of the, the through line between most practitioners and most real disciplines is that they're, they're working on, on surfacing that material. They're surfacing, you know, the stuff in the psyche that isn't necessarily, a, you know, on the surface, but it's running everything from below the surface. And there was a conversation that was conscious and clear and well-defined. And these people actually knew what they were talking about. And I remember sitting there at my first event being like, there's no way, like, there's no way that this is real. Like, there's no way that like, but I just kept listening and the way they were talking, they were speaking with power. They were speaking with clarity. They were speaking with vulnerability they were speaking with um, to each other honestly and really hearing each other in around intense subjects. And, and this was just a communication games night. This was just talking. No one was doing anything crazy, you know. But was your but initial was, your initial thought was it was a facade? Like no one, there's no way that all people could be like this. Like something's going on. It was, so it was, you were it little... was kind of too good to be true, and it was also kind of yeah. like I didn't. I also didn't understand everything they were saying. 
you okay. know, that, that there was language they were using. I'm like, I'm pretty sure they're, they're using that word in a way that I don't fully understand it. Ah, and, okay. But, but the thing that I also noticed, Jay, is that walking into that room and, and participating in those, in those games that we were playing, my anxiety lifted. Interesting. That all of a sudden it was like, oh, I'm in a space where people are being vulnerable and connected and this kind of like layer of protection around myself that I carry that I, I don't know what else to do because I'm actually not super skilled at being vulnerable or connected can yeah. suddenly come down and I can actually breathe in here. People are telling each other the truth. People aren't walking yes. on eggshells around each other. Women are actually speaking about their desire, what they want, what feels good, you know, what's what's um what they actually think about the men that they're in relationships with. And no one's being shamed. No one's being made wrong for anything. People are just being honest. And it was like, oh my God, where has yeah. this been? Like, why don't I, why have I never found anything like this before? And it's an and important so aspect said, no. that a lot of people don't get is having that, that giant sense of community. I mean, without it, what's your purpose? You know, it's like, you need that. You have to have connection. You have to have human connection. Otherwise you're going to self-destruct. You don't have yeah. all the answers yourself. Yeah. You have to seek yeah. out counsel from, from an outside source. Thousand percent. And, and even Jay, even just at the level of limbic regulation, you know, there's a, there's a great book called yeah. General Theory of Love, um, I think written by a bunch of St uh, Stanford psychologists and po I think maybe even like brain scientists, but I can't remember. And General Theory of Love, and they talk about this concept of limbic resonance, which is this notion that we all carry, you know, we all carry sort of felt empathetically transmitted material. Um, a, 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 someone in the healthcare uh, field uh, said to me a while ago in an interview that, um, he said, there, there's no disease worse you can catch than a bad mood. <laughs> Seriously, yeah. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I think the, the, to some degree, and we're going we're gonna to kind of shine a, a hundred tiny lights on what, what One Taste actually was. It's kind of difficult to describe with sort of a one shot, but I think this is the difference between English and Japanese is that English, you know, is, you know, you shine one spotlight on something and you say exactly what it is and Japanese shines a hundred tiny spotlights on it. We're going to go, we're going to go a little more Japanese, I think with this one is my guess, but, but one way to, um, describe one taste. And I think any group is, um, it's a place where people were committed to doing the, the inner work so that they were, um, actually, naturally, organically, not in a forced way, not in a contrived way, not in a way that you had to fake or manufacture, but that you were actually joyful, purpose-filled, uh, awake, clear people, because that's contagious. And when you have a group of people, and another way of describing that is a monastery, right? When you have a group of people who were all exactly, committed yeah. to that, to that, you know, to sort of keeping themselves in that kind of, you know, peak spiritual condition, which is also what you find in groups like Alcoholics Anonymous or Al-Anon, right, is a group of people who have, you know, committed to sharing power together, to sharing clarity, to sharing sobriety, you know, in various ways. And you have a group of people who are willing, you know, willing and interested and understand the utility and the power of, of you know, doing that. You have something even really powerful organism that can do a lot. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. 
everyone initializes or internalizes everything and, and they try to seek the answer for themselves, but you're missing community. You know, imagine a cup and you keep filling that cup up with water and the water represents stress or negative baggage that you carry. Well, that right. cup's going to overflow. And when it overflows, that's when catastrophe happens. Having a community allows you to empty that cup out. So allowing right. you to, right. to have more of a bandwidth to absorb more stress. Beautifully said. In fact, in fact, the, the, um, you know, uh, uh, Nicole and a few friends, you know, at the, and this of course, isn't mentioned at all on the film, um, many years ago started an organization called fill up America, which, um, every single Sunday, well, it, it changed days on various times, but I think sometimes it was on Friday. I I'll, I'll tell you, I personally ran this program for about a year and a half in San Francisco where um, we would, uh, you know, volunteers, not just people from One Taste, but people from all over the community, including some of us, but we, we founded it initially, were distributing food to people in San Francisco. And that's, that's morphed into our free food program, which is around now, uh, which is part of the, what we call the Unconditional Freedom Project. Um, and that's unconditionalfreedom.org if anybody wants to check that out. But uh, shout out to Unconditional Freedom. Um, shout out. But the idea, the, the motto of the program initially was um, uh, empty what's full and fill what's empty. So if something has surplus, Beautiful. if something has surplus, it's natural for it to empty out like a rain cloud that's gotten so heavy yeah. it has to rain, right? Or if something needs something, then that's the thing you fill up, right? And so it's this sort of um, big chain of life that when you acknowledge that you're part of it, you can begin to uh, take part in all of it. Couldn't agree more. That's awesome. Eli, let's get into this Netflix documentary. Let's do it. Or film, should we say. Whatever you want to call it. We'll, we'll call it a film at this point. So what did you actually watch the film yourself or no? I've watched it on several occasions. I've read the okay. transcript many times um, and I've studied it. <laughs> I've studied it uh, pretty intently. And maybe, Jay, I don't know if this would be helpful for the audiences, but maybe it would be helpful if, if you said a minute about what had you reach out to us initially. Yeah. So after watching that documentary, the film, you know, initially I watch it and face value, it was Netflix seemed to have done a very good job at making this company look like people were were getting raped that people were there Day against night. their will <laughs> people were <laughs> against their will they didn't want to be there and they were treated horribly right that's that's what i got after watching it the very first time that's what and then I got I thought, after watching it <laughs> yeah and then after thinking you know i i so i, I had to watch it again cuz i'm like there's clearly something that i'm missing like there's there's just there's a bigger piece to the story because clearly just one side of this story is being shown and out of numerous hours of footage, I'm pretty sure that's available. They cherry picked like we only saw like an hour and a half of footage and interviews, which put one taste in a, a cataclysmic filter, if you will. And <laughs> now we see that's right? generous. That's, yeah. generous. <laughs> that's being generous. Cataclysmic is being generous. So, you know, I watched it again. I'm like, okay, I got, I'm watching this objectively now. And it just didn't make sense. There was just a, a whole nother story, a whole nother side of the piece. Cause we didn't hear from Nicole. We didn't hear from you. 
So that's when I went and I reached out to Nicole and I, I wanted to talk further about this and get the complete other side of the story, which clearly there is. And that's why you're here. And then, and then what happened? What happened when you messaged her? Oh yeah. She was all about it. She's like, yeah, yeah, that sounds great. Uh, let me, I'll put you in contact with Eli, reach out to Eli. And there's, there's a like numerous amounts of writing and articles being written on this subject. And, you know, I, I did some reading, did some research and it, it, it seems like my inkling that I had while watching this film objectively was true to my belief. So there was another side of the story. So I'm, I'm super glad I reached out because let me ask you, has anyone else reached out the way that I did, like considering another alternative view to this? Um, it's a great question. Um, you know, company wide, we're definitely receiving a lot of inquiries. Um, yeah. and people are really curious cause I think, I think people are actually pretty smart and they can tell when something is being, I, I mean, not always, you know, I was just talking to a woman this morning, uh, who is a European, uh, in, in the community, uh, the one taste community who, you know, we've been maligned, but let me just say that the people, you know, the, there were 35,000 people who came through the doors in, you know, over the something 14, 15, whatever. I don't know exactly how many years it's been, but however many years it's been since one taste has been around since like 2004 or something. Um, and, you know, you hadn't heard about any kind of abuses or anything beforehand. And there's a reason for that is because, you know, people had a great time. <laughs> Very, very and, true. And, um, you know, um, so, so people are not, people are not, I'll just say, I'll just speak totally frankly, people aren't idiots. And, um, but they do trust the media because there is, there are institutions in the media that for a long time have earned trust. And mm -hmm. I'll just use an example. You know, the BBC is such an example because they did a podcast uh, purportedly about one taste. They described an organization, which I don't recognize, but they said it was about one taste. And just to give you an idea of, you know, the, the sorts of things that are being talked about right now that people are asking us about, um, that podcast makes some extremely serious allegations against people, uh, who were employed by one taste at one time. And, um, one of them, uh, a bunch of them, uh, have sued the BBC for defamation. And uh, that case is publicly available. Anyone can read it online. Um, we flew to London in, I guess it was July of last year, to partake in a hearing to find out if our defamation claims would be allowed to be heard by the court. And we heard um, just two days ago that uh, one of the uh, claimants, Rachel Churwitz, who's a dear friend of mine, uh, was uh, uh uh, allowed, the judge ruled in her favor to allow her to bring defamation claims. And this brings an end to um, a BBC strategy that I would characterize as uh, the, or uh, my, my good friend would characterize as the, the anything but the facts <laughs> strategy, which is what we've gotten from them so far. And a prime example of that is that the only piece of documentary evidence, so in other words, everything in the rest of the podcast is hearsay, uh, yes. and innuendo and interviews by people who have, uh, at best indirect information 
about alleged abuse that allegedly mm -hmm. occurred. Uh, the people who are speaking are uh, not going by their real names. They're not using their real voices. And they're talking about someone who's also not going by their real names. So, um, you know, I'm not sure in what free culture that passes as a credible accusation, but, you know, that's what we have here. And the only piece of actual documentary evidence in the entire podcast is an email, which they purport to have been given by uh, an ex one taste employee is what they say. Uh, and the email they say is about um, someone in the organization who was abusing, uh, allegedly abusing his girlfriend um, and that everyone knew about it. It was open knowledge and no one did anything about it. And one mm -hmm. taste actually uh, was responsible for uh, stifling anyone from, you know, speaking about this or doing anything about it, which is preposterous. And the, uh, they read an email that was alleged that's from one taste lawyer at the time. And the email says something like, hello, everybody, you know, sent to staff and it says, hello, everybody, we've been become aware of a domestic disturbance or something a domestic, uh, you know, a dispute or something at someone's house. And, you know, we're looking into this and please, please don't speculate about it. Please don't talk about, you know, the details with each other and, you know, don't spread rumors and, you know, it's, it's sort of very like, you know, you know, please keep this contained. And the, the podcast makes the uh, direct factual allegation that this email is about these particular people that they talk about for the rest of the podcast. And that this was one tastes, you know, nefarious uh, doings to keep the, the, the information uh, you know, in-house. And so no one knows about these abuses and, you know, all, yeah. they make all these other insinuations. Well, it turns out that email has nothing to do with those people. That email actually has to do with two people that we barely even know who reported some, you know, they had some experience at this someone's house and woman wasn't happy with it. Um, and we followed protocol to the letter. We asked her, a staff member asked her if she wanted to call the police about it. She said no. Um, we ended up barring the man from our events, even though he uh, claimed that he was innocent. Nothing you know, happened between them. Um, and we hired outside counsel to address it. This is all in a Medium article on our Medium site. If you want to read more about this, we lay all this out. But the yeah, BBC, it's not just you saying it. Like, this is actually documented. This is actually documented. Like, you can go and, read and it. The BBC, yeah. the BBC, before we even got the court ruling that said that we were allowed to proceed with defamation, was already forced to edit that part out of the podcast and has already conceded, Damn. has already conceded that this email, which they said was factual evidence that we were using our lawyers to prevent someone who needed help, who was in a, a domestically abusive situation from getting help, that we prevented that with the use of our legal arm. Like that is an absolutely heinous accusation to make against somebody. And they have grudgingly begrudgingly kicking and screaming agreed that it's completely wrong and that it should be taken out of the podcast. And now it is. And if you go on their, on their site, and this is just strike one, Jay, we are, we are just getting saved. This is just like a fraction of what's actually they, going they on. They didn't do their homework. They, they've accused people on that podcast of all kinds of abuses and assault. They never called them. They never called these people to get their opinions, to get their, you know, viewpoints. Yeah. Did these things really happen? And if they had, these people would have been able to provide them with evidence that said that it didn't. 
And so, you know, Nazteran Tavakoli Far, uh, who is the podcaster from the BBC, uh, has quite a bit to answer for, as well as her editors. Um, and my prayer is that Rachel Truitz um, gets to, you know, show up in court, uh, which looks like it's going to happen unless, you know, there's a settlement of some kind, which could also occur. But, um, you know, um, I know Rachel, I know who she is, I know what she stands for. Um, and I know uh, that if she gets, you know, if, if this ends up going all the way to a court case, um, she's going to bring it. And um, I don't think these people have a, a snowball's chance in hell of proving their facts. So yeah, because f- facts outweighs what whatever smoke and tire kicking they yeah, have to bring I mean, to the if table. If you have someone in their own words saying, you know, that anyways, I don't want to get all, into all the details, but I can tell you, um, I can back up what I'm saying. I don't think that they can. Yeah. And you also have a, an issue with how the filmmaker in the Netflix film went about creating this documentary as well. Oh, well, it's, you know, there's <laughs> where do we start, Jay? How much time do you have? I mean, you, know, <laughs> got five hours. you, have, you have a documentary <laughs> filmmaker. So Sarah Gibson is Sarah the documentary Gibson. filmmaker uh, responsible also for the Britney Spears documentary, which has also been panned as totally exploitative uh, in various ways. And this is a woman who uh, purports to be about taking down the patriarchy and, you know, all of these kind of rah, rah, you know, causes that um, get her, you know, her name in black and white. And um, I'm not saying that, you know, that there hasn't been, um, you know, positive uh, or even accurate, um, you know, uh, films made by Sarah Gibson. I don't, I'm not as familiar with the rest of her work. I know what people have said about it in the media. Um, I know what happened with our project, um, but, you know, I don't even know if it's necessarily, uh, I mean, I have my own issues, but, you know, there were, I think, upwards of a thousand people who went through our coaching program. So One Taste um, teaches a practice called, in case people don't know, they teach us, we teach a structured attention training practice. Okay. This is a meditation conducted between two people who are following a predefined set of detailed instructions. One of the two people participating known as the strokey, which is a woman must have a clitoris while the other person known as the stroker does not need to possess any specific anatomy other than a stroking finger. This practice takes place physically inside of an arrangement of pillows that includes a blanket to lie down on, and a few and a few pillows and a washcloth and a few other things you can read about it on our website in, uh, on the online training website instituteofohm.com and so this is called a nest the practice involves um, again a, a prescribed set of instructions it's the same way every single time there's no freestyle you know there, this is not a sex act this is a meditation that involves the most sensitive part of the human body which is the clitoris 8000 plus nerve endings and the most dexterous part of the human body which is the index finger you don't have any finer muscle control with any part of your body than the left than an index finger. Okay. And so you put these things together and they, people have to keep their attention on the, the whole idea of the meditation with a regular meditation. You, you would put your attention on the breath or um, on a candle or a mantra or something in Ohm, It's a, it's a connected meditation. So you don't, you're not doing it alone. You're doing it with another person. You cannot do this practice alone. And so both people take their attention and they put it on the point of connection between finger and clitoris. And you're, you're stroking quite gently 
with about the same pressure that you would use to stroke your eyelid, right? The tender tissue of your eyelid. And so both people put their attention on that spot and there's a communication style which occurs, which, you know, one or the other person can ask for um, firmer stroke, a lighter stroke, a faster stroke, a slower stroke. And what you're doing is you're trying to find the most resonance of a combination of speed, pressure, location, and length of stroke, right? Throughout a 15 minute timed experience, which has to be that both people can actually let go. There's a timer. So you don't have to negotiate for anything about when it's going to be over. It's always over 15 minutes. And both people are putting their full attention on what they can feel in their body and what they can feel at the point of connection. And this practice has lots of anecdotal evidence and there's emerging scientific evidence around what it provides in terms of healing and growth benefits. We can talk about that later. But the reason I, I started talking about this practice, orgasmic meditation, is this is what Nicole created. This is her, her main gift to the world, plus a huge philosophy which goes along with it. But we had a coaching program. There were a thousand people who had taken it over many years. We had 16 different coaching programs from 2010 until 2018. And uh, so roughly two per year. And um, these programs were amazing and rave reviews. People love this program. And these programs were taped <clears throat> and they were taped for archival purposes. Uh, everyone agreed in the room that what happened in that room would be confidential, um, that they could talk about their own experience, but not the experience of other people, that it was a safe place for people to be vulnerable, let their guard down and be open and, you know, talk about the, what was really true for them. And this was a, a leadership training program, just as much as it was a personal development program and a program for people to, um, you know, uh, there's a thousand things I could say about it, but. You know, the idea, again, like I said, initially is, you know, my friend Chris, um, who's in the documentary film, sadly, um, you know, he was searching, he was trying all these various prescriptions of funny guy and pickup guy and nothing really worked for him until he abandoned prescriptions and started going with a descriptive version of who he should be. And Jay, the difference between a prescriptive and descriptive, let's say recipe is a prescriptive recipe says, you need these ingredients in order to make a good dish. You need to have these things, right? And so you have to go get those things. You have to go get funny guy. You have to go get, you know, organ eating guy or whatever it is. A descriptive recipe, a descriptive recipe says, whatever you already are naturally is delicious and irresistible. It's, it's a description, a descriptive path is a path that says, what you start with is already right. And your job in, in, in our coaching program was to find out how your life as it is right now was already right, how you were already perfect and how you, you know, with room to evolve, but already perfect mm -hmm. as you are now with room to evolve and how, who you are underneath all of your ideas about who you should be is actually the person who is of the most value, who is the most relatable, the most attractive, the most capable person you are, is the person yeah. you are underneath all of your ideas about who you should be. Okay, good so far? I, I, yeah, I agree with that 100% because society puts such a such pressure on to be someone different. And, you know, the social media apps, I feel like do a really good job of pushing you further away from who you are to get acceptance and validation. 
Well, totally. And, and, and we can talk about yet another conversation, but you know, I think women, men, men and women both have a difficult time with this, but I think women have it, you know, especially around sexuality. Um, no, I mean, they're, they're both, we're both pretty screwed up, but you know, women, women have it pretty rough. You know, it's yes. like to be a woman in the culture is, you know, a, we have a very heavy Madonna whore complex in our culture where you're either a woman who, um, uh, both are kind of an unintegrated identity sexually, you know, essentially sexually where, where you're either, um, you either don't have a, a sort of, um, outward facing sexuality or you do, but it's, it's everything about you. It's, you know, it's Cardi B on steroids, you know, and uh, shout out to Cardi, love Cardi. Nothing, hey, Cardi. nothing. About it. Thank, thank you, Cardi. Thank you so much for, for, for holding who you are. She's and, a regular listener. So shout out to Cardi. Love Cardi B. Damn, I love Cardi B. And, you know, and, and that's one, and that's one expression and every woman has to find their own expression. But, but the point is that, you know, as far as the culture, I think, I think Cardi gives a lot of permission to a lot of women to sort of stretch out. She's got to hold that pole all the way over there, you know, so that people can meet somewhere in the middle. But the, the, the point is that, you know, there's a, um, there's an integrated version of what a woman is sexually with power that Nicole was always interested in, 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 you know, being a place where women could come and do the really uncomfortable, messy work of cultivating that part of themselves. And men could learn the, and go through the uncomfortable, messy work of being a man who uh, uh, can actually uh, be connected to a woman who is going through that, you know, going through that, that kind of growth and who on the other side is a fun person to grow and uh, wake up with in that in that regard and so we had a camera person who taped all of our courses and again this was understood to be confidential one taste has never and would never do anything with that footage that people did not agree to um consensual absolutely consensual and and you know but there's footage of people in the courses doing the orgasmic meditation practice on stage you know with their pants off um, there's footage educationally and there's footage, uh, in those programs of people saying very intimate, very, you know, uh, personal, um, part, you know, things about themselves. And if you watch the film, you'll see it. it it's, it's constant. It's a constant barrage of people's personal lives that they thought was confidential being exactly. created on this screen. And what actually happened was we only found out, um, you know, way late in the game that uh, this guy who was, um, you know, given the responsibility of being the archivist and being the camera person uh, and, you know, sort of, you know, that was his job, you know, was uh, actually keeping a second copy of a bunch of the materials uh, yeah. and kept it uh, afterwards um, and, you know, sold it to this documentary maker for what amounts to a paltry sum of money, like an absolutely paltry sum of money. Um, and you know, this woman who Sarah Gibson purports to be about, you know, helping the, the, you know, destroy the patriarchy, whatever. It's like, no lady, you just violated the privacy of thousands of people to make a buck trashing a woman you've never even known doing interviews with people who have their own agendas and, <clears throat> and their own ideas about what one taste was one of whom is Nicole's ex-husband of 20 years ago, who she was married to for six months. 
and it, and it, like that's the best you can do for sourcing you know and so anyway it's it's a, it's a it's a real shame that that happened because a lot of people were were very very hurt by what happened and harmed in, in actually many cases i i'll say both hurt and harmed um we've heard some absolutely heartbreaking stories about what people women particularly have gone through after being paraded around on that film um for the entertainment of the true crime audience on Netflix. It's devastating what we've heard people have gone through as far as what their families think. Now their most personal sort of moment of expression is, is yes. you know, being used as an entertainment object, you know, in, yeah. in front of America. And it's like, that's just gross. It's disgusting and it's hypocritical on the on the part of Sarah Gibson. Um, yeah, people people were being used as objects right now in this film, pretty much. Like, absolutely, just like absolutely, a hundred percent. At their most you vulnerable, know. you know, you're naked Victim. and you're you're yeah, you're in a consent, you're doing consensual sexual activities. Like the last thing anyone wants, unless you're Kim K. Shout out Kim Kardashian is having your sex tape leaked. You know, we watch this footage and we don't think twice about how this is in front of us right now. How are we watching this? Was everybody okay with this being on screen right now? And, you know, just kind of the, the natural way of thinking is, oh, it has to be because I'm seeing it right now. So they gave permission for this. And that's like what's destructive about seeing stuff like this on Netflix when there wasn't, right. they didn't give the okay. No. And, and, you know, people signed releases with one taste. They didn't sign releases with Sarah Gibson. Sarah Gibson has no permission to use that from anybody who is in those films. And I mean, maybe the couple of people who are, you know, on in the film with her gave their permission, right. but the, the people who, like you said, very well put are being objectified. And, you know, to me, this is almost the equivalent of like, you know, like, like someone takes pictures of something, you know, people's genitals for, you know, like educational purposes or, or, or medical purposes. And that gets, you know, turned into something salacious and get sold to someone for entertainment purposes. It's just gross. Um, yeah. Also, you know, notably, one of the the people in the pod, actually both uh, Chris Cosley and uh, Ruan Nipagala, who are both in the, uh, in the film, um, gave personal footage and photographs. A lot of the stuff that you see in, in there as well is, is, you know, from their own, you know, I, I actually don't know about what Chris Cosley gave, but I know that Ruan uh, gave a, a, you know, he made a video a while ago about giving, having given uh, a ton of stuff to them and having gotten verbal assurance from Sarah Gibson that, um, you know, that it was, uh, uh, yeah, you know, that, that she would contact everybody in, in the photos and make sure, you know, that they were okay with being used. That didn't happen. And, and he got burned. And I think this is, this really speaks to the intentions is you've got, you know, you've got this story, you've got sources feeling burned. Um, and, you know, she wasn't in it for the truth. She wasn't in it for the truth. She was in it to make a buck. She was in it to perpetuate this narrative that she's some kind of do-gooder who's out there to support the underdog. And meanwhile, you know, she caused more harm uh, in that film uh, than, you know, I think um, anyone really realizes who's watching it at home. Yeah, well said. I agree. That's why I reached out. Knew there was something else. Um, I want to touch base on a, on a few things that could be out of context within the film. 
So there's yeah. this there's this scene where Nicole makes some rape comments, and I want to touch on that a little bit, if you don't mind. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. So um, when she's giving that, I think it's a, a little bit of a conference. There's there's some people in there, and she. That's yeah. Almost, so I'll just give you the context. So that's that's all footage yeah. from a coaching program. So those are people okay. who who have signed up for a ten month coach tra- training program who have spent the last, I think that's like month seven of the program who have spent seven months learning this material, being familiar with Nicole. This isn't a public talk. This isn't a talk that was ever meant to be played in 10 second increments where, where people could sort of just, you know, take one little slice of it and make up their minds about, you know, who this person is and what they're doing. This is in the context of a much larger, much more nuanced, continuing conversation between Nicole and a group of people who have an active dialogue about various subjects and ideas that are, if you've ever taken a program like that, you get into the weeds about things. You, you try on different perspectives and you you look at things through through uh, a lens because you've you've created so much trust with people that they know where you're coming from. So anyway, continue. Yeah. And, you know, there was the, um, do you have the comment that she made on hand? Um, which which the one? Because there's a couple. Which one specifically okay. do you want to chat about? So it's like just if you're raped, like all you are is just a, I believe it's like a, a raped victim. That's all you have. Like that's your worth. Oh, here you like go. That's all yeah, you I, can read, I can read that. Yeah. So so the quote that, that Jay's referring to is, is, um, from a, the beginning of a 90-minute lecture that Nicole's giving to a group of these students who, again, are the ones being trained um, to bring this paradigm that, that you know, if you watch the film, the paradigm is, you know, um, <laughs> women should be abused and there's a, a beast that everyone should just let out and go off on people and run around and be reckless. And that is just the absolute opposite. They, they really pulled one over on you guys. Um, yeah. But the context of that, of that statement, she says, so Nicole gets in front of the room and she says, um, she says, okay, um, this joke is so funny. She's like, she's like, and she's obviously sure, you know, her eyes are wide and she's kind of, she's, she's a ham. She's hamming it up in front of the room. She goes, okay, this joke is so funny. She goes, okay, this is going to be our new t-shirt. She says, I got raped and all I got was a victim story. Or it could be like, I raped someone and all I got was a perpetrator story. And right. And so you, you see that and it's very quickly edited together with other stuff. And you're just like, oh, my God. And everyone clutches their pearls, you know, and, and it's like, oh, my God, it sounds like, you know, she's, yeah. it sounds like she's, you know, she's like making fun of people who got raped. You know, and, and it's nothing like that. This was a teaching technique meant to shock students and, and open them up to reframing their perceptions about a sensitive topic. It's not a heartless joke made at the expense of the suffering. Right. So so, you know, um, she's on a chair at the front of the room wearing this sort of impish expression on her face. She opens her mouth and like mock surprise, like, oh, my God, did I really just say that? Right. So she's she knows she's breaking a taboo. Right. And then the filmmakers allow just enough of it to play so that the viewer can conclude that her statement was at a minimum deeply insensitive. 
and at yeah, most that's, that's being delivered to the audience, right, as her true intent to create company branded crude rape humor based apparel. Oh my God, not even close, right? Yeah. So, so her opening assertion, like this joke is so funny, right? That's actually that's actually the tip off, right? That's that's how she's letting the audience know to like you know listen in closely, but also skeptically to what I'm about to say, right? So this is it's a bit of gallows humor with the purpose of grabbing everyone's attention, right? To open the audience up to expose her belief that women who have experienced sexual assault deserve more than they are being offered. While she was making a joke about the inadequate tools people who have these experiences are given, she does not find the reality of a situation funny for those who have experienced rape or sexual assault, right? The aspect of the joke in its many forms is based on this notion that after a costly experience, a person has nothing to show for it except for a disappointing consolation t-shirt prize, right? And she goes on to explain that she herself has been the target of sexual assault. She has cred to approach it with humor, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, you know, if it's okay, well, I don't know if I actually want to read all of this, but there's a Medium article about this as well on our on our Medium page, which, which explains it. Um, you know, what, what Nicole's, I don't know if that's making sense, but what she's trying to say is that there's, you know, the identity, the identity being left with nothing but a label, an identity of victim, right, is both tragic and deeply debilitating and that it perpetually shapes how people view themselves. And, and I would yeah. argue that Nicole, having been in many rooms with her for a long time, and you know, we'll, we'll be creating a, a film as well that will be released, and you'll see a lot more to her than, than they show you there, right? That one of the main things she's interested in, in her teachings, is helping everybody get out of their static identities, is helping everybody to find out who are you, you know, below the identity that you have been, that you've taken on in the world, right? What she does is, you know, she continues on saying, right, that what that what this does is it creates learned helplessness that has your consciousness numb out. This is a quote. She says, the problem with the victim story for me is that it takes away your power. Right. She's talking about the story. You know, she she says, um, you know, uh, and, and it's also notable that she applies this equally, this thinking equally to the rapist. Right, who sees the error in their ways and is paid penance and leads a life of virtue, right? But can't let go of this fact that I'm a bad person, right? And I, I realize these are controversial, you know, topics because these ideas are so cemented in us that people are now static. You are now a victim. You were a victim. You are now a survivor, right? And and her point is that these things that happen to us can be viewed as life sentences, which they often are now. Or yeah. they can be viewed as sort of like almost like starting gate positions for growth that of someone you can become. And she cites her own experiences, uh, you know, as as the impetus for her wanting to create a vessel, one taste, which was here to heal and not hurt, right? And um, I don't know if you've ever seen this TED talk. There's this awesome TED talk by these two people. Her name, one, the woman's a. I hope I pronounced this correctly, but her name is Thordis Elva. And her boy, her ex-boyfriend is this guy named Tom Stranger. And they were um, girlfriend and boyfriend a long time ago. And they had an experience where, um, you know, uh, he assaulted her in her sleep. 
And they wrote a book together about reconciling it afterwards called uh, South of Forgiveness, a true story of rape and responsibility. And, um, you know, this woman wrote a review of it in the Sydney Morning Herald. And she says um, that the woman, Elva, um, here's the quote, Elva asserts that she will not feed his self-pity, but she still listens patiently, urging him to give up the, quote, big, bad rapist self-image and to move on. And this is a this is a difficult thing. It's a difficult topic. It's a sensitive topic. Um, I in no way, shape or form. And I speak for everyone in this organization to say that there is absolutely no trivializing of those experiences that anybody is trying to do with these statements. The intent is to say that the tools that we are being given, the language we are being given, the semantic um, stances that we're being given that are static are unhelpful and debilitating to people who have had these experiences and people deserve so much more than just the title of victim or, or survivor. Those are totally right positions in the evolution, but there's a, there is a, there is, there is more to life than that. And, you know, I think Nicole knows that from her own experience. And I think that she has uh, spent her life dedicated to helping women to move through and grow past if, you know, including all of themselves, if that's what they want. How's that? What happened? This is brilliant. Yeah. Didn't something happen to Nicole when she was younger? So it's like, by no means is she putting lights on these scenarios. She herself was, correct me if I'm wrong, but she was sexually abused when she was younger. I don't know how she would describe it. I think she would say, I think she would say, you know, I've heard her say things like she was the target of, of, you know, of sexual assault at some point in her life. Um, but there's a great, she did a great podcast. If I just don't want to put words in her mouth because I yeah, know that yeah. I know that she's, you know, I just know that she's, um, it's her personal life, quite honestly. And she uses it a lot for teaching. Um, the main point I, I was trying to get is that she was able to overcome and not let that define her because she went on to create a magnificent company. I, and I, I'll, let, I'll let her, I'll let her speak for herself. And, and I know that she did an interview a while ago. Um, people can look up that podcast. Um, from a few months ago, if they want to hear how Nicole speaks about her experiences. Um, yeah, but I think, I think those, I think, I think her, I think, um, well, I'll say that from what I've heard her talk about, um, her experiences, uh, have been deeply informative for her about how she wants to approach things in the world. And again, have helped her see that sexuality can be used, um, as a way that can, uh, hurt and as a way that can heal and that it's a great power and with great power comes great responsibility. Yeah. And what I want to say is, I mean, maybe it sounds a little off to some people, but if that situation did not happen to Nicole, would Nicole be who she is today? And I, I just, I don't know. Like sometimes you have to go through these incredible terrifying situations to unlock something within you, which makes you grow as the person that you're supposed to be to your potential. I I agree. And I, and I, again, I I hesitate to try to put words in her mouth around her experiences. And she has a, she has a memoir coming out, you know, 
in the pretty near future that'll, I think, discuss, you know, all of that. And I just don't want to get ahead of any of, you yeah, know, her understood. own her own messaging around it because it's a really intimate, really personal thing to talk about. And um, I, I know her very well. We are we are very close, and um, I just don't want to put words in her mouth. Yeah, um, I respect it. Let, let's move forward with uh, there. There's another clip with. But, I, but the, I also uh, want to say that the thing that you're pointing yeah. to is absolutely true. Is that you know I think psychology. You know, if you if people want to Google it, there is this whole uh, notion of what they call post traumatic growth, and mm. um, and I think you know I think that um, you know if we get into a conversation here about um, mystical experiences and psychedelics and the way that orgasmic meditation plays into that. Post-traumatic growth is uh, a huge factor and is something which is being studied uh, right now, both in psychedelics and in orgasmic meditation. Yeah, my favorite. <laughs> so there is another, we'll, we'll touch back on that in a little bit. I just want to grab this while we're on the uh, the topic of yeah, the great. Netflix. Film. Keep us moving, Jay. Um, yeah. <laughs> so there's another piece in the film that that looks really, really bad. The Netflix did a really good job of making it look terrifying. <laughs> and that that's <laughs> the one, you know, the where it looks like there's a, a three second clip of a woman being like oh, grabbed yeah, and yeah, yeah. surrounded. Yeah. So if you don't mind giving some context and, and how was that taken I, out? I'm of, happy to. I'm happy to. I'm happy please, to. Please. Um, and I agree. And just so everyone who's listening is knows, like, I know what it looks like. Like, I'm not blind. You know, I'm not, I'm yeah. not delusional. I'm not saying, uh, you know, watch that and be like, wow, that looks great. Like, no, that looks, that looks like this woman's like struggling, you know, and like, you don't know the context yeah. and, you know, there's a whole, I hope we talk about a bunch more of this, but yeah, I can totally give you the context. Um, I know Please. both of those people. I know both of those people and um, they are like brother and sister and, you know, and they were, you know, a little, uh, what's the word? Like, um, sophomoric juvenile. They have these people are, these are two friends who have incredible permission with each other. And basically, um, in talking to her, uh, about the clip, um, she was like, yeah, you know, like he would, it was totally consensual. We had a brother sister kind of relationship. We would wrestle like, that's just, you know, these are, these are people in their, you know, 20s and early 30s they're rambunctious they're they're playing with these primal energies at one taste it's a community at the time it was a it was you know community with um boundaries you know and people could were were having a lot of permission to um uh, explore with each other and you know no one ever thought that that there was a camera rolling <laughs> and that there that like right you know, that they're, that they're, you know, what they thought were their sort of like private, you know, experimentations and, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, horseplay and whatever would, would be, would be used in a context to make it look like, you know, that was happening. And, you know, it's blurred out so you can't see. And at one point you kind of, you can kind of hear her say something like stop or like cut it out, you know, or so something like that. But that was the nature. That was the nature of their relationship. There's absolutely no assault happening in that video. Nothing like that was ever happening at one taste in a way that like people were just like, ha ha ha, look at that woman's being assaulted or like nothing that that simply did not happen. And, um, you know, like we are there were human beings doing human being things. And when there were conflicts and things came up, they were dealt with appropriately. 
And these are, they're, you know, this is, that's all documented. We even, we hired a reconciliation expert at one point to work with the community on, you know, people who had, you know, issues that came up with each other as it does with human beings, especially in an arena like this, right? We had an ombudsman on staff to deal with, you know, stuff that came up between staff, numerous sensitivity trainings, numerous trauma awareness trainings. Like we did a good job and, and, um, you know, and, and people who, who one taste was very self-selecting because people who were there to, um, frankly, be reckless and be assholes just didn't make it very far, you know, and, and it was like, no one wants to hang out with that person. And they get a lot of feedback really fast that like, Hey dude, like, or Hey woman, right. There's this notion that it's all men, right. That's sort of one of the other trances that the, that the Netflix film, you know, kind of does is, you know, you walk away from that. And, and, you know, and you can kind of notice in your head if you agree, like, yeah, that's right. You're sort of stroking your chin. That's right. Women are always, you know, these kind of, um, uh, you know, helpless people who need everyone's protection, especially the media. You know, women are guileless prey. That's true. You know, like you walk away kind of being handed that narrative and you're like, yeah, men, men are dangerous. You know, yeah. but, but, but then, you know, kind of shadowed with this sort of overarching thing of like Nicole, they you know, um, needs to be, you know, put in prison. Nicole, they is, is on the run. Nicole, they you know, and it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's so much hypnosis. There's so much, there there's really so is. much going on, so many trances going on there. Um, I don't appreciate you know, that. I, I have a real trust issue now with like everything that you I should, see. Like, man. I, you should, this yeah, shit is crazy. I do. It's crazy. And, and it's, a, and I think it's, it's distorted. I think I, I may be misquoting him, but I think, um, uh, here, let me just find this. I think I have this actually written down in a notepad here. Um, that, you know, um, women have just as much aggression and just as much, I think it's called like trait, trait aggressiveness, um, here, here it is. Let's see if this is, it's something like basically women have just as much aggression, aggressive tendency and vindictive tendency and all the same tendencies. They're human. They have all the same tendencies as men. Shocker, right? Mm, Except mm-hmm. men tend to, uh, express it more physically and women do it reputationally. Women do it socially. Right. When, when, when women attack, uh, yes. when women express yeah. that they, they do it socially, they do it, they do it to isolate people, to ostracize and stuff like that. And that's, and that's, you know, that's, that's a, point. a whole nother subject, but um, you know, it's, it's just not real, you know, we can get more into it, but even the woman who is purported to be sort of the main, the main victim in, in the Netflix film is no angel. And, and, you know, and we can, if you want to talk about more about that, but the things that, you know, her sister comes on there and talks about did not happen. Yeah. I actually want to look at that in a more broad sense. Um, like the, the film kind of did this job of making it seem like every source was abused, but in reality, there was actually no specific allegation to oh, you notice that you notice that you you must have gone back yeah. to the movie and really paid attention <laughs> yep <laughs> second time because the first time you know it, it looked like that these people were abused and i really thought that 
someone was going to harm themselves because of what they've been through. And then after right. the second they're, they're time, all, they're all sitting on beds with faraway looks in their eyes, you know? Like, yeah, so like, yeah, man. No, there isn't. And in, in, I mean, at least from, from the people on screen, none of them claim that they were themselves were abused. I mean, one woman is like, you know, Nicole said this thing and she was like maniacal or, you know, whatever she says about, about Nicole and, you know, kind of paints her as this sort of, they sort of paint her as this like sadist and all this kind of stuff. And, I've known the woman for 14 years and that has not been my experience. Um, and, you know, and then there's, um, there's, you know, Audrey Wright in the film. Hilariously, yes. I don't know if they, if they, they, they have her on camera and she keeps, she says this thing, which I don't think people really pick up on. So Audrey says, I've heard that Nicole is living on the land. She's back in the United States and that she's on the land right now. I'm surprised that she came back given there's an active FBI investigation. The times I've gone back, it's like I know I was in a cult because I automatically feel like I am back home. I want to stay there mm. forever. And, and it's not like they actually cared about me. I basically took a swan dive into this project without really thinking of how people feel when they see it. There's a lot in there to unpack. Audrey Wright has actually been in contact with us personally, very lovingly, for a long time. She's come and visited. Um, <laughs> like... The fact that it's just so bizarre. It's like someone comes to your house, eats your food, stays in your spare room, you know, is totally cool with you. You reminisce about old times. You say goodbye. They go back to their lives. And then they show up in a documentary. <laughs> they show up in a film talking about how the, I'm, the reason I'm sure I was in a cult is that every time I go back, they're so nice to me. That's, that's strange behavior. From from well, me being well, on the yeah, outside, like, wouldn't cults wouldn't 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 a cult kind of be like you're in it, you're out, you know, or or like you betrayed us and like we're gonna try to destroy you now and all this stuff and it's like we're just not this just not who we are. Like, I actually love all these people. I actually love Audrey Wright. Audrey Wright actually is a wonderful person, and Chris Cosley in there is a wonderful person. These people are all wonderful people. I've seen them all be wonderful people and you know, I don't want to, I don't want to try to psychoanalyze anyone, but something happened that, that had each of these people forget who we are and what we actually shared and what we actually did together. And to me, that is, that is the most tragic part of all of this. And that, that was then exploited by a filmmaker and, and, you know, and like we talked about the people on camera whose, you know, personal lives were used in this way. It's not just the stuff on camera. You know, I, I talked to a, a woman who's um, a, a storyteller. And one of the things that she has said to me is that, you know, our most powerful, our most valuable commodity, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that can come after that. Could be, could be your attention, could be a lot of things, right? But she says it's your stories. And mm. What this, what this film did and what these people contributed to, which they have to answer to at this point is, or they can, if they want to, but that to me is sort of the, the, the karmic load that they are all now carrying is they participated in something. And I don't know if this was their intended outcome, but they, they participated in something that has stolen the story of thousands of people who had something they were proud of that was a deep part of their lives that they love. And maybe they, maybe it's like, the you know, there's something which they did. And they're like, I'm glad I did it. And I, I got what I needed from it. And I don't want to, you know, I'm, I'm good, which is totally fine. 
and um by design you know like it's it's designed that people can take the programs and be done and be part of the greater community and not you know there's there's no commitment required for access you know we always had a free rung of people of things people could do like it's it's you know it's not strictly like pay to play because even though we did have programs that, that did require money even though we gave tons of scholars hundreds of thousand dollars in scholarships but anyway enough enough about that um but these people contributed to something which stole a lot of people's stories out from under them. Now, if you go around and you say, oh, I actually got a tremendous healing and a tremendous growth and, and this huge experience from one taste, people are going to look at you weird because of this freaking film that paints it as if it was some place that it was like, okay, all right, women, you know, enjoy the abuse, men have at it. And it's just like, that is yeah. the opposite. That is the opposite. And the film is so cherry picky and so selective and so crafty and skeezy in the way that it crafts the narrative. It's just so gross. Again, the, the film did a really good job of confusing the viewer because at the end of the film, they made it seem like the doors were closed with all these allegations out. And then Nicole was basically an enemy of the state and she fled the USA to live a different life. That's what after watching it for the first time, that's what I got out of it. <laughs> so it's, it, again, couldn't be anything further from the truth. There's, uh, there's medium articles about this. And it's so funny because, um, well, I'll go into that, but, um, you know, in, in Netflix, you know, and in this vice, there's a vice piece that came out about one taste, which is sort of similarly silly. Um, a key theme is that oh, the her her whereabouts are unknown like she's Carmen San Diego yes. or or exactly. or something right and it's so formulaic and it's so predictable and it's so wrong yeah. and you know that that basically you know um it's just a deliberate demonstrably deliberate attempt to smear Nicole based on false pre false pretenses you know and Nicole is a resident of New York City uh, she travels internationally. Uh, her whereabouts are never unknown to her friends and, and associates. Um, she's very easy to find on Instagram, as you found out, because that's how we got very put in easy. touch. Correct. Yes. It's how long, one how long did it take her to reply to you? Not even ten minutes. It's pretty damn quick. There, there you go. So, so she's. It's not like you know. It's not like, and it's also kind of like well, and you know, the Vice piece says you know. They make this big deal out of like, we don't know where Nicole is. And it's like, no shit. Like, why <laughs> would you, why would you know where Nicole is? Right. You haven't yeah. been, you haven't been around in five years. You uh, took like three classes or whatever, you know, like the notion that she's fled is, is a known fiction that they're using to create the narrative that they want to, to create. They suggest there's something yeah. alarming about the fact, right, that most people don't know her current whereabouts, but there's no reason any of them would. Right. So I think a big takeaway for anyone who watches as many documentaries as I do on Netflix, be objective when watching. Like, watch it and really, really use your mind. If something seems a little off, it's possible it could you have the ability to reach out to people and get the full story, get both sides of the story. When you get just the left side of the story, 
like that's a, that's bias. When you get just the right side, that's bias. When you get the full story, you're able to make conclusions. Okay, it's usually somewhere in the middle. Like, and then there's a lot of facts that you were giving. There weren't too many facts that I was seeing on the Netflix documentary. So, Eli, I, I'm very grateful that that you came here on this podcast to tell your piece. But let's just kind of wrap this up. How are you feeling right now overall? Like after having a conversation with you, you seem like a very intelligent, well put together, happy individual. I I don't carry hate in my heart. And, you know, I'll just say at the risk of of sounding like an acolyte, you know, like if you don't think I already am one, you know, I, I, um, I'm really grateful because when all of this started in 2018 with the initial Bloomberg article, Nicole basically made a promise and she was like, I'm, I'm going to, whatever happens, I'm going to come out of this and I'm not, and I'm going to do what it takes to not be bitter. Because so many people, when they're unjustly and, and, you know, um, falsely accused of things come back bitter and, and come back jaded. And I think it's different to say that you've learned something or that, you know, you, you've been educated by the experience, you know, hard knock university, you know, um, and, uh, you know, and it's like, you know, to, to, to do the work constantly to remember who people are, to remember that, um, even though someone may have gotten deeply lost and have distorted something beautiful to make it look, you know, to sort of play into the hands of a filmmaker, that's still a good person. And that's still someone who I consider to be a friend. And I, I will remain here and I will not forget that even though they may have. And, um, I think that to me is the way that I want to live. And, you know, we've, I think a huge part of this also, Jay, like if you're just, if you're, what's your secret, you know, my, my secret, secret? (laughs) yeah, my secret is that, is that my secret is that um, despite some of my baser instincts, um, we have continued to create beautiful things and forward our movement through all of this, you know, um, what I'll say is, one taste was and remains an experiment. And the question underlying the entire thing was and remains is how do we as adults with full agency and volition remain connected no matter what? And what would it take for a group of people to create an almost Wikipedia style experience where everyone has equal opportunity to participate in experiences they would not otherwise have access to? And, um, you know, there's agreements that we all made that people who were in the organization made around you know what what was this mission about and we who have remained despite the difficulties have made massive strides in the four years that one taste has not offered courses in science lobbying um, the laying out of the philosophy in many books nicole has created um somewhere between so depending on sorry how you count in between 16 and 24 books in four years, um, we've created uh, an entire nonprofit, um, the Unconditional Freedom Program, uh, which is, uh, again, uh, creating, uh, 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 um, turning prisons, 
transforming prisons into monasteries with the prison monastery project, um, doing free food, making, bringing the dignity of, of, um, you know, food made from the soil for the soul, um, to people who wouldn't normally be able to get it. Um, and countless other projects that we've started and that are doing amazing things. You know, the, the prison monastery project was just written up in, uh, the journal for the nation's, uh, it's the publication for the American Society of Criminologists. And that's a big deal. I mean, that's like a, that's like a, a serious trade publication. And our program was just featured in that. And we've just grown that in the last four years. Really, that's the pretty last, amazing. really the last two years since 2020. It only started in about 2020. So we've been hard at work creating things because that's what we've always been about. You know, we... I don't know that, you know, people are like, well, what about your reputation? And don't you want to wait until everything? And it's like, you know, I don't know the reputation matters that much in this time. It seems the people who are really aiming to change the world are the ones suffering the worst reputational issues. And, you know, again, we've remained, we've continued with our agreements to bring this to the world, despite the difficulties, you know, mm-hmm. there are, I think currently six peer reviewed IRB approved studies that have been looking at the healing and growth potential of orgasmic meditation. Um, as I've mentioned to you, uh, they are finding that um, orgasmic meditation, uh, they, they did a, a, a study with 780 participants um, and found that uh, the mystical experiences that were created, that people experienced during orgasmic meditation sessions um, uh, when they occurred, uh, which was a significant amount of time, uh, I think over 60 something percent found that it equates to the high, second highest dose of psilocybin used in studies uh, with psilocybin uh, that were gauging the strength of those mystical experiences. And do you know if that, yeah. that has uh, neuroplasticity when, when that occurs? Cause I know that um, uh, mushrooms, when you take mushrooms, it, it results in neuroplasticity which is the growing of neurons in your, in your mind. Well, I think, I think we, I don't know that they've gotten the, to the extent that I can say definitively, but I think what's remarkable about, about this is that with orgasmic meditation, you're tapping into your own neurobiology without the use of any substance. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's not, and again, we're not saying substances are bad. Psychedelics have, have, are doing amazing things for PTSD and, you know, for, for, for all kinds of growth and healing and uh, I mean, nothing, nothing, please don't misunderstand nothing bad on, on those, on, on those substances. But I think there are a lot of people who might not want to take a substance in order to access a mystical state, or there's people who, um, you know, uh, might not want to do extreme sports to enter flow states, for example, Correct. right. And, exactly. and sort of have that life or death uh, flow experience and um, orgasmic meditation offers those is seems to offer those mystical states in a way that again doesn't require taking risks doesn't require imbibing substances you're only tapping into your own neurobiology and then on top of that it's a meditation it's an attention training practice this is not a sex act and the reason that's significant is that people who do psychedelics, 
you, ha you have to do integration. You actually have to integrate the experiences that you've had or else you kind of walk yeah. around with a bunch of experiences that are, that are um, uh, unintegrated, undigested experiences. And those have their own side effects. I'll let your readers read about that. Um, and the fact that there is an attention training practice during orgasmic meditation means that when you come out of it, you've already done most of the work to integrate the experience that you just had. You're doing it in real time. It's kind of a Goldilocks uh, combination of um, something like psychedelics or something like flow experiences that don't require what they require, but that's also an experience that people want from meditation, which is to train their minds away from reactivity. But for some people, that's a really slow path and it takes a really long time. And I'm yeah. a huge proponent of that practice. I love meditation. And what they're also seeing uh, in the science is that um, – uh, Ohm improves feelings of connection. And I think I'm looking for one of the results, but um, here's a quote from one of the uh, scientists who's studying it right now, because it, it, it seems you know, there, there are um, aspects of the practice that have a lot to do with, uh, that are overlapping with people see in terms of meditation, uh, in terms of the benefits of meditation. Um, several areas of the brain alter in activity and functional connectivity during OM and show similarities to meditation-based practices. There are distinct changes in the brain when comparing male and female participants. This is most likely associated with the different roles each play during the practice. Although some brain changes are experienced by both male and female, regardless of role. So, you know, in men, what we're seeing in the practice is that flow state-like patterns in, in the brain, uh, increase right which means that men tend to show brain states that are generally associated with effortlessness focused attention suspension of thoughts right creating a positive experience of pleasantness and intrinsic motivation right a sense of being alert while letting go at the same time and women tend to show uh significant uh what they call you know they're still developing the vocabulary for all of this but you know air quotes at one sort of oneness, union, like patterns in the brain. This means that women are in peaceful states, feeling a part of or connected to what's around them, their partners, themselves, right? And so that makes sense because we know that when a, a woman's vigilance part of her brain relaxes, it's that kind of amazing state that, you know, that a woman can get into where she's totally open, she's let go, she's out of her head, you know? And um, a lot of people... May, may sort of try to shoehorn the practice. If you read around the internet, there are kind of all of these, um, there's a bunch of articles from doctors who know very little about this practice who kind of put it in the context of like a sex thing, but it's anything but. Um, and people can read more about um, the OM practice at instituteofom.com and they can read about the science benefits, the mystical states and all of that at um, iomfoundation.org. And then if they want to, Jay, is it okay if I plug a, a course I'm going to be at soon? Oh, of course, man. Yeah, I was going to let you for sure. Okay. I've had it. So, so I am going to be in person in Los Angeles uh, on February 25th. So that's in just under a month um, teaching the What is Ohm course, which is a, um, a pretty amazing day. It's a day-long course, singles, couples, everyone's welcome. Um, and you don't have to bring someone just bring an open mind. 
and we're going to do a real introduction to the practice. You're going to see the you're going to see how it goes. You're going to see a live demonstration of the mystical state that's involved with orgasmic meditation. You'll see uh, you'll get a lot of the philosophy behind the practice. It's going to be awesome. And then we're doing another one in May on the 13th, which is my birthday. So bring me something cool in New hey, York. My birthday is May 14th. No way. That's crazy. Taurus is. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Um, and um, and I'm going to be in New York on May 13th um, doing the same course. And these are going to be big courses. They're going to be fun. It's going to be an awesome, engaging day. It's going to be very stimulating, very cool, very exciting, very relaxing. It's going to be all the things. Um, we're going to hit every single destination uh, on the wheel. How's that? Sounds good. <laughs> Well said. So, so you, you can sign up for those. Yeah. Those are those are all you can sign up for each of those classes by going to onetaste.us. There you have it. Excellent. Eli, I appreciate you doing this, man. It takes a lot of courage to come on here, you know, with all the scrutiny and the bad press roaming around, but I'm glad you were able to come on and share your facts, painting a much, much clearer picture, you know, holistically. So thank I you. Hope so. Thank you so I much. I hope so. And I, and I wanted to, again, I wanted to encourage your readers. You're welcome. And I just wanted to say to people, you know, the facts speak volumes. We have a medium site, check those out. If you really want to know what's going on with all of this stuff, if you pay attention, um, there's quite a bit more than meets the eye. And I want to thank all your readers for, um, meeting this conversation with, a, with an open mind. Um, please reach out to me. I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Instagram. You can all contact me and I'm happy to talk to anybody and, um, you know, have a conversation super open, um, Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it, Eli. Thank you. Everyone at home, hope you enjoyed. Have an open mind. Peace.